Welcome. This is the February NICPEED APE Collaborative. Uh, we're very excited to have you all join us today. Uh, I'm Melissa Bittner from CSU Long Beach, and today we're going to have a great panel on uh, APAC, Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly, the Board of director, Directors, which will be moderated by Nick Peed President, and I guess moderated slash introduced by Nick Peed President Deb Shapiro. Uh, then the second 30 minutes, we're going to bounce into breakout rooms and have a chance to discuss adapted PE, just hot topics, issues, concerns, what's going on in the field, so we get a better feel for what's happening out there. So welcome all. As a friendly reminder, we will, we are recording this session. We're live right now on Nick Peed's Facebook page. This will, the recording will be broadcast on the What's New and Adapted PE podcast and on the Nick Peed YouTube um, site. So thanks all for joining us. At this time, I'll go ahead and pass it over to Nick Peed president, Deborah Shapiro. Great, thanks, Melissa. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to introduce their session or the first half of the session on APAC. Um, just as a brief history of APAC, it's the Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly. It is the official peer review, multidisciplinary research journal of the International Federation of Adapted Physical Activity. APAC was founded in 1983 by Dr. Jeffrey Broadhead, who served as the editor in chief until 1991. And he was succeeded as editor-in-chief um, by people including Greg Reed, Claudine Sherrill, David Peretta, Terry Rizzo, who I saw here, um, Marcel Buffard, Shaiki Hutzler, and Jeff Martin. Uh, articles published in APAC reflect a diverse topics, approaches, methodologies, and interpretations related to physical activity inclusive, inclusive of physical education, recreation, exercise, sport, and dance, that is adapted to enable and enhance performance and participation of people living with a disability. Scholars publish an APAC from disciplines including physical education, teacher preparation, human development, motor behavior and learning, biomechanics, exercise and sports psychology, and exercise and sport physiologists to name a few areas. And the research is conducted using qualitative, quantitative, and multi-method designs. So APAC is divided into six sections, and that's include a viewpoint section, uh, the research application sections, brief research notes, reviews, and books and media. So as I mentioned, um, APAC has been led for the last six years by Dr. Jeffrey Martin from Wayne State University. And as of last month, our truly Dr. Justin Hagel um, has assumed the role of editor-in-chief of APAC. So as a brief introduction, Justin is an associate professor at Old Dominion University in the Department of Human Movement Sciences. His research focuses within the interdisciplinary fields of adapted physical activity with primary interest in examining how individuals with disabilities experience physical activity participation. He is a renowned researcher and has received several awards for his scholarship from Nick Pete itself from Shape America, IFAPA and the National Association of Kinesiology and Higher Education and as the research fellow with Research Council of Shape. Justin is joined here by two of the associate editors of APAC, 
Um, the first is Andrew Pitchford, who is an assistant professor at Oregon State University in the College of Public Health and Human Service Sciences and an affiliate faculty in the School of Biological and Population Health Sciences. Andy's research focuses on preventing health disparities among individuals with developmental disabilities across the lifespan. He works systematically to examine these health disparities and identify designs and test targeted interventions for health promotion. And lastly, Kelly Arborn Nikitopoulos is an associate professor from the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the University of Toronto and adjunct scientist with the Bloorview Research Institute. Kelly's research interests are in health and exercise psychology, disability and physical activity, quantitative research methodology, and knowledge translation. She's extensive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, Canadian Tire Jumpstart Charities, and Sport Canada to support her research examining inclusive community sport and physical activity environments and programs for children with disabilities. So having introduced our speakers, um, for the next 25 minutes or so, um, we have the, the divided this presentation into three portions. So the first, Justin will address the directions for APEC under his leadership. Kelly will then precede him and share her insights about what is a good review for APAC. Andy will address topics and trends in research in APAC, and we'll conclude with an open question and answer session for our panelists. So with all that, Justin, we begin with you. Thanks, Deb. And, and I do you think we should recognize Deb spent, uh, I've I, I guessed eight years earlier, but I don't know if that's accurate, but Deb spent quite a bit of time as an associate editor for the journal as well. And this journal has been supported by a lot of great scholars in APA over the years, including Terry, again, who is here um, uh, as one of the former editors. And uh, my advisor at Ohio State was Dave Peretta, who's another former editor, which um, is something I noted in the um, the brief note that I put into APAC uh, in the first issue that I was the editor that I think I'm the first one to have been advised by an editor um, and then became editor, which I think is like a fun, a fun little um, quip, I suppose. Nothing really more than that, but uh, I think the idea today is to talk a little bit or for me to talk a little bit about what um, I see as the future in the next three years of the journal and and I, I do, I will say a few things that we're hoping to, to push forward, but I don't think that it's necessarily my job to determine the direction of the, of the journal or what's published within the journal, but rather to guide the ship. Um, there, there's no problems with the ship. And so I'm happy to guide it on the course that we're on, just perhaps navigate the waves and such as we go along. And so one of the things that I put into that note um, was to recognize what Jeff had done as the APAC editor as far as improving um, the, the, the work quality that was being published and reducing reviewer time and adding associate editors from three to six and increasing the impact factor of the journal. And these are all things that you know I applaud and I also think are really important that we continue to focus on um, for the journal to continue to have you know, high notoriety in our field, but also in other related fields as well. Um, second, uh, one of the things that, that I'm, I'm quite interested in, and I think we've done a, a nice job already at moving toward, is increasing the international representation in the editorial board uh, for the journal. And so when I took over last month, we were at about 85% of the board being North American. Uh, this is specifically to the editorial board, not the associate editors. 
um, but we had uh, asked the, the editorial board about continuing on with us and several of our uh, longer tenured board members had uh, elected to step off um, so that there could be room for for uh, newer review or newer editorial board members and we actually just posted something on the APAC website um, thanking those people for their service a few days ago um, but because of that we were able to invite new people onto the board and many of them are um, are not North American so our percentage right now has decreased to about 63 percent North American so we've already dropped about 20 percent um, from uh, North America specifically to other countries. We have our first South American representative on the board, uh, Maria Alves from Unicamp in Brazil. Uh, we have a few uh, Asian representatives now as well. Uh, Shen Zhao Li from Southern China Normal University, as well as uh, Jay Che, who worked at La Crosse for a while and is in South Korea. Um, and so I'm pretty excited to be able to help uh, diversify the board a bit. Um, pretty quickly, and I'm sure that over the next three years, this is something we'll continue to do. Um, we're also making a new concerted effort, uh, which Nick P appears to be making as well, um, to be on more social media platforms. And so we founded a Twitter profile um, uh, in January. Uh, one of our one of the doctoral students here at ODU, Lindsay Nowland, um, elected to take the role of social media editor. So she's running that. And in the next uh, couple of months, we'll start a uh, Facebook page as well as, I believe, Instagram page. Um, so we're trying to uh, shoot out more information about APAC, what's being published, uh, thank our editorial board members. And we've just profiled um, each of the associate editors over the last few weeks. Um, and some of the associate editors' tweets have gotten huge followings. Uh, Sean Healy apparently is really popular because this has been tweeted and retweeted over and over again. So um, yeah, pretty pretty funny to see that. And, and the last piece, and, and this is probably the thing I'm most excited about is um, I want to help to facilitate conversations in our field more, um, hard conversations to have, critical conversations about various things happening within the field. Um, I think these should be, um, or I think that the viewpoint section has been underused in the last few years as a place where we could have these critical, like epistemological or methodological, methodological or theoretical conversations um, to help create some tension in the field and help move our field forward. And, and so we're going to uh, do some invited commentaries. We're hoping to promote the idea out to um, potential authors who might have some ideas on what to introduce to the field so we can continue to grow that knowledge. Um, and part of the reason for me that this is an exciting area to push is because I think of in my own doctoral studies until today, like looking back at the history of APAC and seeing papers by Marcel Buffard or Terry or uh, Greg Reed, or uh, even there was a paper with Reed and Heidi um, years ago that I still refer back to. And these were papers that I think of as providing some conceptual or theoretical foundations for the field, some from Claudine Sherrill, um, that, that we're missing some of these now. And I, I think thinking back to those and, and thinking of how we can um, further encourage people to add that type of knowledge into today's discussion is a really important really important in a role that APAC has to play um, in the field. 
And so that, that's all I've got about future directions or current directions and where we're moving. I think I'm passing it over to Kelly to talk about like what a good review looks like. Thanks, Justin. Um, yes, I, 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 I am new to this group. So thank you for having me today. And it's a pleasure to speak with uh, Andy and Justin about APEC. Um, and you know, my role here today is talking about good review. I think being one of the associate editors, um, I really felt honored to be in this position and seeing different types of reviews. And we all have, I think, our own different style. And uh, I think um, many of us over the past few years I've, with, you know, with the pandemic, it's been a tiring time. And I think this is a really good time to think about going back to the you know, quality and, and, and I think with regards to the peer review process, uh, the important role that reviewers have. Um, stuff that I've jotted down here, many of you probably say yes, absolutely. I, I, and I just wanted to highlight um, just these points because it may be surprising to some, maybe not others. We don't always have these in some of these reviews that we're working with. Um, and I, I'm not sure in terms of who's on the call today, but maybe some of the the graduate students there, um, you know, I think it's important to start off on the right foot with regards to with the, the review role. So, you know, things that I think from my perspective, um, and also collectively, Justin and Andy have talked talk, to be chat about this is providing reviews that are clear, um, concise. I'm sorry, I'm speaking up there. Move my little thing around here. Uh, constructive, um, you know, I think it's really important in terms of criticism, um, you know, work with to, to really, um, I don't want to say work, work with the with the uh, authors. I think it's important to provide clear feedback, uh, not only just um, in one particular area of the paper as a whole, the consistency throughout, looking at the important aspects in terms of methodological rigor, uh, writing, writing quality, um, a review is organized. Um, I, I, I mean, how many times often are we seeing in some of the reviews that come through not recognizing page numbers and, and line numbers so that it does make it challenging, I think, for authors to know where are viewers coming from. Um, if those, I think, really maybe seem small, but so important uh, imp information. I think oftentimes we put our reviewer hat on, all of a sudden we just focus in on um, errors improvement, errors improvement. I think it's also important to know, which are important to focus on, but also strengths. I think a lot of the papers there are some uh, authors are taking risks with their work. And I think that is something we're, you know, encouraging. Um, and so I think recognizing the strength of the work, uh, I think in the, in the uh, APA world, we don't often work with big numbers. And I think that we really need to be pushing forward. I feel Andy will talk a bit more about that probably in his section. Um, but to be mindful of that, of what is the focus of the paper, the methodology, um, you know, are we really expecting big numbers if we're doing uh, really rich uh, qualitative work all the time? Not necessarily the case, right? I, I think it's also important to think about the, to consider the work to be innovative. And I think this really highlights what Justin was talking about in terms of viewpoints. Um, is a paper moving the field forward or is it just stagnant? Something we just can constantly seeing time and time again. I think that is, as a reviewer, to be mindful of that, even if it's, you know, it's crossed the desk, got into your hands, feel comfortable to say whether or not you think maybe maybe it is not as innovative as maybe thought, Justin thought it was and sent it over our way. Um, it includes reasonable requests. I think that's important to note. 
um, asking, you know, to just do the study all over again. Well, that, you know, that, that may not be fair. So I think um, in that regards, you know, maybe it's not a quality study, but I think it's if you have these reasonable requests. Uh, the, the second last point there is really important, I think, from an associate editor role, and it's timely, done in a timely fashion. We all have a lot on the go, and that's just recognized. I think it is this role of an associate editor um, communicating with us as a reviewer. Um, you know, you're busy. We, we understand. We appreciate the service you provide. Just reach out. Um, don't just ignore emails and just not be not be present. I think that is really challenging and it really does a disservice to the authors and making them wait. So I think that's important to note. Don't feel bad, be prepared ahead of time and reach out to the associate editor or if you don't know who the associate editor is, then uh, Justin as the editor. I also wanted to highlight the last part there is a good review is paired with a really strong response from authors. Um, so now flipping to the other side, it's very difficult, I think, as a reviewer to come and look back at that author response. And there's not much to that. Um, you know, I think we have to uh, really take the time to consider the points that are made by the reviewer and how we've addressed them as opposed to just, thanks for that good point, C-line, blah, blah, blah. It's going deeper into what was considered. Um, so I, I personally, Justin and, and Andy are talking about in terms of our student or trainees. I really work with my trainees to be stronger in the in the responses they provide to the reviewers. I think that also helps them become stronger reviewers through that process. So um, if you haven't yet had the chance to review, I think this is your chance as a, an author or a co-author to, to really um, fine tune those skills of a response document. I'm going to ask Justin and Andy, I know that we've had some conversation, just if there's anything else I may have missed in this part uh, from your own perspectives, you want to jump in. Um, I'll bring up one thing and I'm, I'll fully admit I'm brand new to the associate editor roles, so I have not um, gone through as many papers as Kelly and Justin have in their experience, um, but something that um, I did not recognize until I got into this role is how challenging it is to find good reviewers who agree to do the work. Um, so when we send out invitations to review for, for, for APAC, um, we would really like quality people to accept those in invitations um, and provide good reviews because it really helps uh, the journal to advance work in this area. Um, and then on the other side of that, getting back those reviews in a timely manner, um, I will fully admit um, I was not, I have not always been the best at returning reviews on time, but now being on the other side and watching as a review becomes days and days and days late, um, I think I'm now a little more appreciative of uh, uh, the need to do things on time. Anything else from you, Justin? Uh, yeah, I think uh, two things come to mind. One is I think, um, and I've heard this from other fields and I, I'm seeing it reflected a little in our field is I think that reviewers understanding what a review is, is really important. And so like a reviewer isn't making a determination about whether or not a study should be accepted or 
um, or rejected or if it should have major vision, uh, revisions. What a reviewer is doing is they're providing their opinion, right? So they're providing their thoughts. They're going to make a recommendation, um, but it's not their job to either reject or accept a paper. Um, and then the associate editors um, then form their opinion based on their own reading of the work, as well as the recommendations of the reviewers. And then it's it's not their job to make a decision either, even though, of course, like as the editor, like I trust what the recommendation of the associate editors are 99.9% um, .9 of the time. Um, but it's also not their job. And so um, for reviewers to understand that they don't need to make that choice, I think it takes a little bit of pressure off of them. It's their job to make the best informed recommendation that they can about a paper, not to either accept or reject a paper. But with that said, when a paper comes back in after some revisions, reviewers shouldn't be thinking, I need every single thing that I said to be fixed, fixed, right? Rather, their author, it's their job to engage with the reviewers in a way that addresses the different comments respectfully, but they could decline to address certain things depending on what the reviewer said. Um, so it's not as clean cut as some people might think as far as um, a reviewer says to reject a paper, so the paper gets rejected. Um, that's that's really not how it works. Um, the other thing is when it comes to a review, we would ask for reviewers to take the time to write up a narrative review. Um, it, while I understand that it may be more beneficial for the reviewer to download a PDF and put comments into the PDF and send that back as an attachment, um, we would more so hope for more of a, um, a thoughtful dialogue with the authors in a narrative format. It could be bulleted. Um, but not just a, an attachment going back because it, it lacks some of the um, some of the conversational tone that a review should have with the authors. I think this is back to you now, Kelly. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you both uh, mentioning those points, and and that goes, I think, back what you're saying, just that that dialogue, that pairing of a good review is with the reviewer and the author having those conversations, so to speak. Um, one or two things I wanted to note before Andy goes into the section, uh, going back to it in terms of the uh, being willing to review. And I think that uh, something I, I recall, Kerry Cornier, those of you who know Kerry Cornier, when he gave a talk a long time ago, I'm not gonna say the date because then it dates me, um, but he, uh, he said for every paper he submits, I think it was, he agrees to review three or four papers. Kerry, publishes a lot. <laughs> um, so I think that that mentality, if you're going to be productive as you would and in, in, in going to submit papers, you also have the responsibility to review paper and in probably several for the one paper that's being reviewed, because think about it, you have two, three, four authors, uh, reviewers that are reviewing a paper. So I think it's really important that we all have a role to play in the peer review process. And, you know, it relies on quality reviewers who are uh, committed and I, I, if you agree to review the one paper, we so want you to continue with that paper. If it gets a revise and resubmit and then comes back and you can't review that again, I mean, these things happen, but it, it is challenging. It's going then to a new reviewer and, you know, maybe look a different lens. So, so that is something that I think we really are trying to push is when you commit to a paper, you're committing it to the, the long haul, not just that one time. Move it over to Andy with this last section. Okay, well, thank you all for uh, having us. Um, 
I'm gonna be talking about some of the topics and trends that we are, are seeing at APAC. And this list is by no means a comprehensive one. And, it, and I'll be honest, it probably is influenced at least some by my own biases of what um, I see or what uh, directions I see for um, the field. But um, some of the things that we as an editorial board and as associate editors have talked about as challenges that we see within um, APAC um, is continuing to have um, papers that are driven from a solid theoretical conceptual or a mechanistic framework uh, to guide the work in APAC has always had a history of a very detailed introduction to the paper. Um, my own personal biases, I do prefer a little more conciseness, but there is a, a rich history of um, having that framework detailed through the introduction to place where a, a new study fits in the literature. Um, some areas that have been pointed out, and I'm going to particularly point out uh, 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 Jeff Martin, the previous editor, um, was very much at the forefront of talking about these, these issues and um, even uh, putting quantitative an, an analyses to it. But we, we often have issues with reproducibility the reproducibility and the replication of, of data. And a lot of that has to do with the small sample sizes that are often a part of our um, uh, research. Um, and we um, often, particularly with programs or interventions, um, don't always have the sample size or the design to come to generalizable, transferable, um, quality conclusions um, that come from those. At the same time, we also see a lot of the same topics being addressed over and over again. Um, and probably one of the, not probably, it's actually been shown, one of the most common um, study designs is a simple comparison between disability group A and a neurotypical or general population group B. Um, and I think we've reached a point that for most things, whether it's physical activity or fitness or obesity, um, simply showing that there's a difference between a group with a disability and a group without is no longer novel or innovative unless it's being done um, in a population that hasn't been addressed or is being done in some new, really innovative way. Um, other um, issues continue to be issues with uh, uh, sample sizes. Um, Jeff Martin wrote uh, what I thought was a very nice paper in uh, Kinesiology Review that really broke down the problems with the sample sizes that we see in um, APAC. And while small sample sizes is going to be um, is always going to be a challenge in our field because getting enough people to be in studies to have statistical power is a big challenge. Um, we've made drastic improvements with including things like effect sizes in, in, in papers. Now most studies um, in APAC have effect sizes. The other side of that coin though is just if you have an underpowered study but have a medium to large effect size, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a generalizable medium to large effect present. Um, and if you were to have enough people to have a substantial sample size, that effect size might not be the same. Um, another issue that was pointed out is the need to have strong a priori hypotheses, hypotheses that occur before the, the, the study is conducted, as opposed to after other results are already known, known and framing a paper around a, um, a post hoc hypothesis. Um, and then the two other things that since we're short on, on time, I'm going to talk about quickly. We publish a lot of intervention and program research in APAC. Um, and there have been reviews that have shown that, um, unfortunately, the generalizability of the interventions that are often published in APAC um, are based off of quasi-experimental designs or um, sometimes even pre-experimental designs and don't have the research rigor that we would expect from something like a randomized control trial. Um, and that's possible that because people in our field are publishing those papers elsewhere. Um, but it, we also know that because of the challenges with a, a sample size, we often don't have strong RCTs. We also generally know that our programs can be efficacious in the short term, but we often don't know about the long term or the sustainable outcomes of studies. So including more long, longitudinal, long-term sustainable outcomes as part of the uh, design. And then my own um, uh, personal opinion is there is a great opportunity with the growing um, importance or uh, of implementation science um, to start to focus on why effects are occurring within our intervention as opposed to what the effects are. Um, we know we can increase motor skills. We know we can increase physical activity if we do a design. What or why within our interventions are the, these effects occurring? And many times that's not, um, uh, that has not been a part of our inter intervention research to date. And then the, the last one, um, and I will admit within my own area, I'm not a, um, a strong qualitative researcher, but we do publish a lot of qualitative research in um, APAC. I think it's important to have high quality qualitative research um, that has a clear paradigm for what lens or focus that qualitative research is going to take and that it's appropriate for the questions being asked. Um, I would push for more individual focus, so talking to people with disabilities and getting their perspectives, as opposed to talking to um, uh, secondary sources like teachers or parapros or parents um, or, or siblings go to the actual individual. And um, I think there's also plenty of opportunities to have purposeful mixed methods where we're combining qualitative and quantitative uh, uh, research. So lots of things as um, of areas in which we can work to um, continue to improve the quality of research that's done in adaptive physical activity and subsequently can be published in APAC. Um, and I think with that, uh, we're going to open it up for questions. Great. Thank you all. Appreciate that insights and the forethought there. Anybody have any questions, please feel free to unmute yourself or put it into the chat. 
I mean, I'll start off then I anticipation of this. Um, any one of you maybe uh, just made this might be a better question for you, but how do you how does one become a reviewer? You know, uh, Kelly was talking about, you know, if, if you submit papers, you should also be prepared to review the papers. So can you talk a little bit about how one might become a reviewer for APAC? Yeah, so we generate, as you know, we generally we're using the Scholar One system. And so when people submit papers to APAC, we have their name within the system and they're like people are automatically recommended for papers through Scholar One. So that's one way. Um, we also look, and, and I think everybody does this who's inviting people, but at, at least when I'm inviting people, one of the things I do is I'm searching Google Scholar for topics that are similar. And I'm looking for people who are doing similar research to the type of work that um, uh, that's been submitted. Um, but if you're not somebody who has papers that are published um, in that area, but you do want to start getting involved with APAC and start wanting to be a reviewer, you're welcome to shoot me an email and say, I want to review for APAC. Um, here's my expertise. Here's my contact information. Um, and I can share that among our associate editors. Uh, that's probably the most direct and easy way to start reviewing. Um, yeah, uh, Kelly, Andy, please feel free to add anything else. Uh, I'll say one potential challenge, something that has with Scholar One and which is the platform that APAC uses um, that actually makes it harder to get new reviewers involved is when we get a new paper, um, the software will suggest to us potential reviewers based off of Web of Science uh, publications, um, which for our job as the associate reviewer makes it easier because we are given a list of likely highly qualified reviewers because they published a lot in that area. The downside is someone who's just getting started or maybe only has one publication in that area might not show up on that list that's automatically generated for us. So um, I try to look at who's published recently, particularly in APAC um, as well as looking outside of that uh, to see if we can get new reviewers involved because many times those um, most prolific or um, uh, highest cited authors are getting a lot of requests and we can't uh, rely on them to do everything. Thanks, anybody else wanna ask a question or for clarification? Okay, I'll question. Sure, go for it. Um, do you rate re reviewer performance and what's the process like with that? Mm -hmm. Sure, so every reviewer is rated in two different ways. Uh, they're ra rated on the quality of their review and they're rated on the timeliness of their review. Um, and those are on a one to three scale through the Scholar One system. And so we do use that data though. So the last time we used that data, um, I downloaded the data from probably 30 or so folk when making editorial board decisions um, in January. Um, mostly for the idea of adding people to the board. Uh, so that data is really important, particularly as you're attempting to advance through different roles with the journal. Yeah, when I was in a, a, an a editorial um, board, or, or associate editor, I would look at those um, and decide whether or not it was worth taking a risk on a reviewer, because if I see that I submitted requests for that person and they never reviewed or they um, got a lot of low ratings, 
it wasn't going to be likely someone I was going to select to review a paper again. So, good. Any other questions? That's a good question, though. Okay, well, I think our time is up on APEC. So thank you, um, Justin, Andy, and Kelly for sharing your insights on APEC. I hope our audience found that helpful and insightful and informative to understand the journal and how it's how it's run and where it's going in the future. And maybe some of these conversations on future directions will come up in our um, breakout groups that um, we'll be going into momentarily. All right. So next up, I'll put you into the Zoom breakout rooms. We have three moderators. Again, this is very open-ended. You may discuss any topic, issue, concern, things of interest that you see best fit. You certainly may continue to talk more about APAC if you like, or you may take this discussion time in any direction. We'll pull everyone back with maybe about seven or so minutes to go. Um, and our three moderators will give a quick like one minute recap as to what was discussed in the groups. So our moderators will be Deb Shapiro, Andy Pitchford, and Lainey Case. So they're each in one of the breakout rooms. So I'm going to open the rooms now. You should see a little tab um, that says breakout rooms open. And I will stop the recording at this time, but we'll start it up when we come back into the whole group setting. Here we go. All right, and welcome back all. I hope you had a nice discussion. Let's go ahead and recap. We'll have our um, breakout Zoom room leaders just give a quick synopsis of what you all discussed. So we'll start off with room one, which was led by Andy. So Andy, if you could give a summary, what did you all talk about? Sure. So we had um, a room that included uh, Justin Hagel, Terry Rizzo, Perry LeVay, um, and by the end of it, I had to um, apologize to Nicole, uh, who was also in our group of um, listening to us talk about the field. We talked mostly about uh, our research um, and continuing some of the um, uh, issues that I discussed uh, related to um, APAC, um, but then got into priorities about focusing on um, having researchers who focus on a particular area in the field, very much in the way that Barry um, was and is the expert in, in, in behavior management versus having more diversified uh, research portfolios um, and whether that um, uh, specialization um, or the lack of it that now exists amongst many of our young researchers is good or bad for the field. And, I don't know if we answered any questions, but we uh, that's what we discussed. Nice. And, Sounds was, like a there, and controversial group. takes on tenure. <laughs> okay. All right, next, if Lainey could give a little chat about uh, breakout room group two. Yeah, so we I had Kelly, Jess, Chrissy, Christy, and Melissa. Um, and there was one other joined in with Jess that I missed her name, but um, we had some conversations about assessment in the field in particular, and um, kind of the limitations that they're experiencing and the challenges that they're experiencing with really finding valid tests to use with their students. Um, it sounded like the most common ones that were being used were the Brigantz and the TGMD3, but they were still having some challenges with 
you know, having valid scores with those students that have um, almost immediate behavioral or communication characteristics that immediately disqualify their scores, or um, they aren't able to bring meaningful, you know, results back to the parents or to the IEP team. So there, this was some pretty rich conversation going on about like a call for help with better assessments or assessments that really consider where their students are currently at. Great, thank mm -hmm. you, Lainey. And our third and final group, um, breakout room three, Deb Shapiro. Yeah, so we were in a group with Eileen Shea, Tim Swanson, Dal Moon, and Michael Lachlan. And um, we were just getting into the meat of our discussion when we got disconnected. But um, we talked about the idea that our teachers are coming up with rose-colored glasses uh, was, the, was the phrase. And the idea behind that is that APE is challenged by not having enough space, not always having the best situations in the public schools, um, not APE not always being a priority um, for schools or struggling to find space and time, high caseloads, and how do we prepare teachers to go into situations like that? And so one of the, the strategies or two strategies was one, practicums, um, where they can see the, the application of the theory, the textbook in, in the real world, and then to problem solve through those experiences. And the other one was um, suggested was uh, emphasis on advo advocacy, not only to help advocate for the students, but to also help with your own one's own longevity in the field. All right. Thank you all to um, moderators for facilitating. Thank you all for joining in on the discussion. I know that our next NICPEED APE Collaborative for March will be on March 10th um, at 10 a.m. Pacific, noon Central, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And we're going to be discussing podcasting. <clears throat> we're going to have on Chris Ayrns, who has a new podcast out called The Talking APE and uh, very much geared toward AP practitioners. We'll have on Scott McNamara, who has the What's New in Adapted PE podcast, and uh, Risto Martin, who has the Playing with Research in Health and Physical Education. And then after that, the second bit, we're gonna have a little bit of a philosophical discussion on general PE, adapted PE, and how we do or do not uh, collaborate and come together. So that's what's in store for the future. Thank you all for joining us today. Much, much appreciated. Till next time, all.